Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 93. This episode of the podcast is with the first team strength conditioning coach at Crystal Palace, Fraser Finlay. Fraser came on to talk about his journey through the industry into his current role at Palace. He spoke about some carryovers that he utilises in his current role from other sports and his work in esports as well, which was really interesting. He talked about the uh, working in youth international football and some of the key responsibilities in that role. And then we also dived into his thoughts and experiences with cognitive and visual training and how he sees that going forward and being implemented into his practice too. So loads of information in this one. It was great to chat with Fraser. So I hope you enjoy this one. Um, Please, as always, give the show a share and just make sure you're subscribed on Spotify and iTunes um, and then push it out to anyone that you think may be interested I'm really pleased with the guests that we're confirming over the next few weeks along with Fraser's episode. So there's some big guests coming up, some that may divide opinion a little bit, but um, I'm really looking forward to, to releasing the episodes to you. And thank you very much again for all your support and listening to the podcast. So here is the episode with Fraser Finley. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 93. I'm joined today by Fraser Finley, the first team strength conditioning coach at Crystal Palace. Fraser, how's things? Yeah, good. Thanks, Ben. How are you? All good. Thanks, mate. Yeah, all good. Busy, but uh, things are good. Has the, uh, how's lockdown treated you so far? Yeah, lockdown's been, <laughs> been quite an interesting experience. Uh, it's quite nice for me to actually get back home, so get out of London to add a bit of countryside to uh, play with compared to staying in a little boxed up flat down here in London. Nice, nice. Yeah, you got, returning to the north can't be a bad thing coming from, this is coming from a northerner by the way, so all the southerners will be, um, won't be happy with that. <laughs> yeah, it's got a few benefits, mate. I mean, what was there, fish and chips, cheaper pints, but I'm sure we can both relate to that. Can't complain with that, surely. But um, let's dive into it. So, Let's go through um, your career so far. So I just said about your role at Crystal Palace, but do you want to take us back and then talk us through where you've been up to your current role? Yeah, go on. I'll kick things off from there then. So like everybody else, I've probably had a real interesting sport from a young age. So I started with uh, playing football locally and then I was playing for Grimsby Town actually until I was 16. And I think it was when I, when I was 16, I actually broke my femur playing football. So for me, I think that was probably the turning point where I got my real interest in sports science because I had to go through the whole process of breaking my leg, not being able to walk, learning to walk again, getting the strength back in that muscle and actually returning to performance. So I think that's where I got the real interest from. So as soon as I knew what I wanted to do, I sort of looked for a sports science course at a local college, managed to find one at Lincoln College. So I was there for two years doing the course alongside playing football for the college accounting at the time which was really enjoyable and then after that I wanted to obviously continue studying sports science I was looking for the best university that I could get into at the time and that was Liverpool John Moores so I managed to get a place at John Moores and I thought it was actually a really good university to go to because it was as far away from home as possible I know it sounds a bit weird but um, I just wanted to get as far away from home as possible I saw it as a bit of a challenge but yeah got the space at John Walls and started there. So any students that have sort of been at LGMU know university is there and I'd recommend it to anyone that's going to study sport and exercise science. But 
in my third year there, that was when I really sort of realized what I wanted to do. So the university was offering, offering a junior S&C internship position, working with like sports teams that the university have and athletes that are in the university. And for any students that have ever come for this uh, position, they'll know that the interview process for this is absolutely brutal. And I'll remember it forever. The lecturer, Carl Lang Evans, was actually like, putting you on your toes, asking you questions on absolutely everything. And uh, the first thing he said to everyone that was successful was, uh, congratulations, I don't think you'll ever have an interview as hard as that ever again. And to be fair, he's probably been quite right. But from there, I quickly realised that I wanted to work in football. So I tried to arrange like some placements or just some visits to clubs. So I managed to get a week at Sheffield Wednesday and a week at Huddersfield Town just to see what it would look like to work in that environment. So after both weeks, I uh, just absolutely loved it. And I knew that as soon as I finished my degree, I'd just look for opportunities in football wherever possible. So I managed to actually get one at Millwall Football Club in the academy. So this was my first proper role in football and absolutely loved it. I was there for six months. Um, it was an unpaid internship, as the majority of them are. So I'd work there from 8 or 3 p.m. in the day and then go and work in a nightclub from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. So it's six months fueled on caffeine, but really enjoyable process and I learned a lot. So I was there for about six months and then a role came up at Liverpool Football Club. So I applied, not expecting to hear anything. And then um, they got back to me to say I got an interview. I think I was extremely lucky just to be given the opportunity to go for an interview there. Um, and then I remember travelling up to the interview on the day, being extremely nervous. And the interview was done with the head of sports science, the first team, Andreas Kormeyer, and the head of Academy of Sports Science, Jack Hayes. And uh, finished the interview, I thought it went okay. Got the train back down. I got a call from Jack and said, we'd be delighted to offer you the position. At which point, being a Liverpool fan, absolutely buzzing. Um, couldn't wait to get started. But I love my time there. I'd say it was as valuable as any degree, of course, that you can do today. Like the people, the staff at the club were fantastic. But the main thing in particular was the sports science office that we actually had at the time. It was full of great practitioners to learn from and they've all gone on to do great things. So sort of Jack Hayde, who's still at Liverpool, who's the head of Academy Sports Science. Ollie Morgan, who I know you've had on, who's now the head of Academy Sports Science at Celtic. Jordan Milson, who's now uh, head of performance at Rangers with the first team with Stephen Gerrard. Adam Rowan, who's gone to be the head of the YDP phase at Manchester City. And Dave Robshaw, who's now head of physical performance at Liverpool Women's and also others such as Craig Burnett and John Hill. But at the end of my time there, I wanted to stay there, but unfortunately there wasn't a role available for me in the academy. So um, they were helping me try and find a position elsewhere. Um, so I couldn't really thank them enough for that. But after Liverpool, the true brutality of sort of trying to find a role in a full-time role anyway in professional football hit me. I probably went to about 15 or 16 interviews to try and get a role. And everyone was like, you were good, but we've gone with someone else. And then uh, I was actually on holiday at the time when I got a call from Tony Strudwick, who'd been given my CV by Jack Aiden. He said, uh, there's a position going at Wrexham Football Club. Would you be interested? And I, would, I said straight away, yeah, I'd love to go and work there. First role in professional football, but it never really materialised. So I got back and um, didn't hear from him for a while. And then in October, he gave me a call and said, we're looking for a sports scientist to come in and help with the Wales national team, but in particular, the youth age groups, so the under-19s. And straight away, although it wasn't full-time, I was like, yeah, just get me involved, whatever I need to do. So I completed my first three camps in sort of September, October of 2018. It's a role I really, really enjoy. Camp environment's different to a club environment. 
So I'd just like to thank Tony for giving me the opportunity. It's something that I'm still involved with today. So while working for Wales, um, a really unique actually opportunity presented itself to me. So it's to go and work abroad for a startup performance company. So similar to the likes of Exos and Hinster Performance. Uh, this was based in uh, Geneva in Switzerland and it was called Helvetia Human Performance Group. So the company was a startup and it involved different practitioners from all over the world. So they came together and we formed a multidisciplinary team to serve elite athletes, corporate executives, and anyone who generally wanted to improve their lifestyle. So we had psychologists, physiotherapists, Chinese medicine doctors, sports medicine doctors who'd worked with the likes of Novak Djokovic and optometrists. So like visual training and stuff like that was that was the USP of the company. Richard Buchanan, um, he was previously the performance director at Swansea City. So he was directing operations over there and was instrumental in coordinating everything. And I learned loads from him. So I probably wouldn't be where I am today without that opportunity from him. So I was there for about four months. Uh, it was really valuable to me. I got to work some really unique sports such as snowboarding, skiing, ice hockey, all of which I think developed me as a practitioner because the different requirements from each sport sort of they present unique opportunities. They've all got different demands. So having to go away and research those demands and then obviously see what each athlete needed was really important. And then after four months, same company actually offered me the opportunity to go and work in Las Vegas in America. So they called me into a meeting, a bit of a weird meeting to be fair, but they called me into a meeting. They said, um, we want you to go to America and be the performance director of an e-sport gaming team. So straight away, I'm thinking gamers, fat, lazy, overweight, how are you going to work with gamers? But um, the idea was to sort of flip the switch on this. So they wanted to promote um, the health of gaming while also treating them like a Formula One athlete. So if you think of Formula One, a lot of it's visual. Obviously, gaming is heavily visual. So I said, yeah, I'll go and do it. So we had a meeting with uh, a lot of global researchers who'd looked into gaming and they said that there actually was an optimal time so an optimal time to gain throughout the week, which would lead to a peak performance at the end of the week. But they didn't know exactly what that time was. So we, we began sorry, collecting objective data to see if we could establish this. So we'd look to treat the gaming team like a normal sports team. So we sort of periodized this approach towards their competition at the weekend. So if you think of like football periodization with a match day minus four, minus three, we did this with a gaming team. So we collect data on heart rate variability, visual and cognitive data, wellness scores and RPEs. And overall, to be fair, the team actually did really well. Um, they won some competitions in Vegas. I found the whole experience great. It was like a blank canvas to go at. It's quite a unique thing to work in. And I think in a few years' time, after seeing what it's actually like in the States, we could potentially see esports overtake some professional sports, just in terms of views and popularity. But after this uh, opportunity over in America, I came back to the UK and continued just to promote the visual and cognitive training in and around Europe. Um, it's while doing this that I saw a role become available at Crystal Palace. So I thought I'd put my application in because at this moment in time, then I wanted to get back into football. And I was lucky enough to uh, get the role where I've been for around seven months now, albeit three of them from coronavirus. The department at Palace is really, really good, both across sports science and the medical department. So with Scott Guy heading up the sports science side of things, Jamie Goldsmith, the SNC, Mike Egglong leading on the rehabilitation, and myself and Harry Booman on the SNC. But I'm really enjoying my time back in football and what it brings with it from a day-to-day -day basis. That's awesome, mate. There's loads to go into. And uh, I'm just going to take 
you back to something you said quite early on in that in that interview process because I think where you talked about it being really brutal uh, at John Moore's, um, what were some of the takeaways from from that interview, and, and what were why was it so brutal? I just think some of the main takeaways were be prepared. So being brutally honest, I remember I wasn't going to apply for it initially. And then I thought, no, I need to apply for this. This is something that I really wanted to do. So I quickly drew my uh, cover letter within two hours, um, submitted it into the office, got to the interview and uh, sat there and got my cover letter around looking at the cover letter. And he said, how long has this cover letter taken you to write? And I was like, "Um, probably one hour. And he said, yeah, you can tell. But he said, at least you've been honest with me. So I think one of the major things just was preparation because going into there, even some questions, you'd go to answer a question and you'd be like, um, um, and he'd be like, you like saying um a lot, don't you? So just little things like that, just being prepared, I'd say, was probably the biggest thing to take away from that. I think it's always nice to reflect, well, not nice at the time, but nice after to reflect on something like that and also for other coaches listening because they might not have been through a process like that yet. So it's nice to for them to hear what it could be like and, and what they need to be doing and going into something like an interview, which um, I know I know Cal Walsh is putting loads of stuff out at the moment about the interview process, which is awesome with Sports Sports CVs. Um, yeah, I saw some of that on Twitter the other day, actually. Yeah, it's really important, isn't it? It's important that we get the information out and, and people know what they're going into or have an idea about what they're going into. Yeah, I just think for anyone who's going to an interview, like majority of people have got sports science undergrads, master's degrees. I just think if you can talk about the relevant experience you've had to that role, that's probably the most important thing that could potentially get you the role over another candidate. Yeah. No, definitely. And then if we work through to, um, well, I want to come to the esports bit in a little bit because I think that's really interesting, but let's go, um, let's dive into your work in international football, so the youth international stuff with Wales. Um, you, you said about the camps being very different and it is obviously a very different approach, isn't it? You get players for a certain period and then they'll go off with the clubs. You've got to try and keep track on them when they're with the clubs and then they'll come back to you. Uh, what were some key responsibilities for you in that role initially? Yeah, I think the main key responsibilities are you sort of managing individuals because each player has come from a different club normally with different athletic development programs. So they'll all have a different pre-training program. They'll all have a different S&C program. Then you've also got to collectively manage the group. So it's sort of balancing the two. So you have to have means with coaches to sort of plan the week because normally you'll have three games in 10 days. So you might have some players that will feature in all three games and then you might have some players that may only feature in one, but it's making sure that if they've got like a GPS loading report, which they'll send before the camp, those players that only feature in one, they're not going back to their club undercooked. So it may require them to do an extra day of training. It may require them to do top-ups post-game, just different little things like that. Just a little update on our online football fitness community. If you haven't heard of the community, this is a place where we store all of our webinars and network meeting presentations. So we have 10 presentations from our networking events that we hold across the UK from numerous coaches, including head of sports scientists, uh, head of sports science, even at Celtic, Jack Naylor. Um, head of Academy Sports Science at Celtic, Oliver Morgan, um, 
We've got loads of other different coaches on there that have presented our network meet on our network meetings. So there's 10 network meeting presentations available. We've also got over eight hours of webinars available on the community too. So loads of different subjects on things like recovery, uh, velocity-based training, um, loads on research and how to how to um, apply research to your practice, loads of different subjects on there. So you can go and check it out and you can get a free month on the community by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab at the top, sign up there. That will give you one free month on the community. So you can have a look around, you can see exactly what it's all about. And then after that, it is only £4.99 per month and you'll get access to all the current information on there, all the current presentations and webinars, but all future webinars and presentations that are going on too. Um, some of which, some webinars will be released very, very soon. Um, there's just some practitioners finishing off some webinars for us. I'm really pleased and excited to release a few more webinars for our community members. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign up there. Here is part two of the episode with Fraser Finlay. Is there anything that you sort of take away from it now, reflecting on working with those players, being in the role that you're in now, and obviously having international players as well? Yeah, I think um, especially for some of the lads that come in, like from lower league clubs, for some of them I think it's a really valuable experience because for them it could be the highest level of football that they play under 19 internationals for example playing Germany under 19 some of those players are playing week in week out in the Bundesliga so for the development of the lads I think it's really really important but the main things I've taken away from um, working with the Wales under 19s is just being again being prepared making sure that everything's ready for um, the camps and obviously when you go into those coaches meetings you've got your key figures ready so you know who needs to do what who needs to be modified because that, at the end of the day that's what the coaches want to know who's going to be playing and who needs to do what Is it fair to say that you have to be quite reactive in that environment as well because you're getting players in like we said from different clubs and that are on different programmes with different injuries and you're, you're, you then suddenly have a lot of players to work with in different environments don't you so you have to be quite I'm guessing you have to be quite reactive as a practitioner to be able to adapt what you're going to be doing and get across what you want yeah, I'd definitely say you've got to be reactive. I'll also say the working relationships you've got with your medical team are really important. So on camps, like working with physios very closely because between the time that the lads have had breakfast, you've had your meeting and you're going down to the training ground, that can be a really, really quick turnaround. So if they need assessments from a physio, you need to really be able to speak to them and then find out, okay, who's going to be training, who might not be training and stuff like that. Yeah. No, definitely. It's, uh, and then what about the focus in that period? So how long would you generally have them for in a camp? Uh, it varies, to be fair. Normally seven to ten days. But sort of the qualifiers are normally ten days and three games in ten days. But the focus is generally just to make sure, like, train, play, recover for that core group of players that are going to be involved. That's I'd say the biggest focus for the duration of the camp is recovery to go again like if we're abroad in Europe somewhere have we got access to a pool have we got access to spin bikes can we get some normal sex things like that because you can't expect one physiotherapist to be giving out 15-16 massages to every player mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. And then they, we've got to dive into the the esports stuff now and and the um, working in different sports because I think you're dead right. I think esports is getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? And a few years ago, we'd have probably all laughed at the fact that it could it could get as big as what it is doing and, and will do in the future. Um, but having the performance department with those, if you call them athletes or gamers or whatever you want to refer to them as, it's a really interesting, a re- really interesting aspect, isn't it? So, can you go into any more detail on the work that you actually did with it? Yeah, so we sort of create some KPIs of what we'd look at. So, we did a visual baseline assessment, and then from that, we could create a, pro- um, a training program on that, what they'd carry out. So we sort of structured their day, similar to you would like a football club, they report at a certain time. So in terms of how that practically looks in a session, is that a case of um, using any sort of technology or is it just slightly adapting what you're doing within like a normal training session? No, there's a few different things of uh, bits of technology, sorry, that you need for the visual training. So there's like some strobotic eyewear that people may have seen in the past. And there's also like big stations that can be used to carry out baseline assessments and form training programs. But I think in terms of just the visual training um, and cognitive training in general, we prepare athletes really well from the shoulders down, but no one's really taking a look at the shoulders up approach. So little attention is really given to athlete visual abilities because assumptions are just being generally made that everyone possesses normal and healthy vision. And what people don't realize is there's 17 visual skills that come together to make the vision. So um, this developmental process is always going on. It's a learning process that can be enhanced with training like any uh, sort of performance training. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So for optimum athletic performance, if we can develop these, each sport's got different visual demands, then I think it's just a missing piece that could be useful. Yeah, when, when I spoke to Andy, actually, at Reso, he was talking about the, the research that those guys have been doing on, on the such small levels that they can... Um, like the minimal effective dose basically that they can put into a program that can have such a big impact. Um, have you guys used any sort of VR or anything like that with it or is it has it been a slightly different approach? Slightly different approach. Uh, the research surrounding VR, VR can be good, but a long time in VR can actually cause visual problems. Mm. So, but VR can be good, but only for a not lengthy periods of time, but the main ways that sort of vision is enhanced for athletes comes in two major forms. So there's vision correction and sort of sports vision training. So vision correction consists of like glasses, contact lenses, special tints. Obviously these help athletes see more clearly with a better contrast. And then the second component is uh, visual training. So that's obviously developing the 17 skills that mentioned about previously with the overall goal of obviously developing these two to improve athletes' vision beyond what's considered as good to normal for an individual athlete. So if we can develop these, um, athletes will hopefully be able to process information from the external world a lot quicker, faster, more accurately, more efficiently, and most importantly, automatically pretty much. Yeah, I think that's that's the interesting bit, isn't it? Because the vision is one thing, being able to obviously see what whatever you want to see, but then for it to process and then you to act on it is, as I guess that's what a lot of the elite level performers are able to do in it in that split second, aren't they? They're able to 
and it does become almost, like, yeah. I think you just used the word automatic, didn't didn't you? Yeah. Like that that's what it does become, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost autonomous for them. So if you can, if you, for example, if me and you, we could take each other and you might be way better than me, but if I'm below that level, then why can't you get a whole team or an individual up to the same level as another athlete? That could be a slight, fair slight difference that makes them better than the other individual. And what, what's the sort of reception been from players on this? Because I imagine it, they can relate to it quite well in the fact that it's something that they'll sort of be able to imagine on the pitch and, and be able to see, well, literally see these things. Yeah, some players, very receptive. So some players, new technology, different things will come in and they're all over it straight away. I want to be the first to try that. I want to do it, even if it's going to give me a 5% chance of increasing my performance. Melbourne through Wall Street, other players are a little bit less receptive, a little bit standoffish in sort of a group environment where they're like, yeah, I don't really uh, want to be seen to be doing that. But then if you can get them on a one-to-one individual level, they're probably more likely to give it a go is what I'd say. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So how, how do you, have you thought about how you see this going forward? Because I know it's quite early on in, in your practice as well in terms of implementing it in, in your current role. But have you got ideas on how you want to implement it long-term? I think the main thing for me going forward with it is it would it be the visual stuff forming part of a baseline assessment during pre-season. I think that's the that's the time when you've got the time to really do it with the lads, assess them and see where they are. And then from there, obviously, they'll get training programs throughout the season. And it's just making sure that it can fit into that because you don't want to take time away and be detrimental from all the other training things. If you can get their training program, they might only need to work on a few things. They might be in the top percentiles for certain metrics, such as like eye-hand coordination and reaction time and stuff like that. But they might be lower for something such as near-far quickness. So if you only need them for 10, 15 minutes, three times a week to develop that, then it should definitely be worked on, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned before in terms of... um, Formula One, I think it's obviously something that's covered a lot in those sports, isn't it? Because it's so quick and the vision and the cognitive side of it is so important because essentially their lives are at risk, aren't they, with what they're doing and any any mistakes could, could lead to and tragedy, I suppose. But we can take things from different sports like that, can't we, and, and put it into our, into our practice. Yeah, I think the thing is with football, I think football's a, a slow adopter. So we see things in other sports and we'll be like, that looks really good, but we're sort of hesitant to do it until sort of somebody else or someone in football with a bit of high profile potentially does it. And then um, once they've sort of done it, we're like, okay, maybe it's good to try that now, but it might have been around for a while. I just think in general, football is a little bit of a slow adopter, but I could see it potentially in the future, potentially, if it's been used in the right way, being the next big thing. Yeah, like you say, it's got to come. It has unfortunately got to come from the the right people for people to take notice, hasn't it? But in terms of the more cognitive side, um, one area I think would be good to delve into is is cognitive fatigue. So, play it. We've I think, I can't remember the episode we spoke about it in, but we have covered this a little bit before. But introducing new things into training um, with certain players obviously can increase their sort of demand and their, the, the fatigue that they, they go through in terms of um, the cognitive fatigue. But like what you said there, it could be a very small dosage, couldn't it, that could have quite a big effect. So is there anything that you thought about in terms of the fatigue side? In terms of the fatigue side, something we sort of did with the, 
the gamers, um, we'd get them like post their a day's training. We'd sort of test, we sort of set up a baseline visual assessment in the morning using the technology. They'd come in and perform that and they'd have a baseline level for that. So we'd sort of look and say, okay, they're bang on baseline, they're above, this is where they are this morning. And then at the end of the day's training, we'd look at that again and see how far away from the baseline they were. So if that day's training actually had a, like a cognitive impact on them, so had it slowed their reaction time and different things like that now. So that was quite a, an interesting one in terms of esports. In terms of football, I'm not really sure where that would fit in. I could see it fitting in potentially on a recovery day because that's potentially where the cognitive fatigue going to sit in and be the most demanding where lads are, are sore the plus two or eight hours after the game where soreness is peaking they've got to go and train again mm. it's just trying to set that up within that environment yeah and again it's it's getting that into that culture isn't it that, that we just said about the, the slow adopter culture of of taking yeah. these new things on yeah definitely I mean I think if you were to implement it, you'd have to implement it at the start of the season and be consistent with it throughout. But yeah. once you've got buy-in from a couple of players, it's not hard to win over the rest of the group. Yeah, and that's a, that's one something that I was going to say then, is it just is important to get that breakthrough, isn't it? And to see the impact that it can make because we're not going to know until we try. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the good thing is when certain sessions have been going on with individuals, if they've seen it, generally you'll get one or two come over and want to sort of give it a go so that's a really quick way to get buy-in if you're like okay you can have a go at this and then they either see the benefit of it or they'll just say I'm not very good at it and leave it yeah no definitely and uh, one thing to was there anything else you wanted to go into because I, th- I think that's a really interesting topic and I don't want to leave any anything sort of uncovered that we haven't gone into there but is there anything else in terms of visual and cognitive training that you think we could go into uh, now, just say some like examples. So people like don't think probably athletes themselves as well probably don't think that they've got visual problems. But like Steph Curry in the NBA, probably one of the biggest basketball players in the world at this moment. He had um, he had a problem with his vision and now wears contact lenses. So that's probably just a really good example of an athlete who thinks well, an athlete at the top of their game who thinks everything's perfect, but he suffers with a, degener- a degenerative excuse me eye condition. So that's just a really good example, I think, to say that your vision might be good in your terms, but until you get it tested, nobody really knows. Yeah, and it's, it's, I bet it's one of those things that when you can put something in place and make that change, it can be absolutely massive, couldn't it? Because it's something that we just learn to cope with, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, I'm lucky, I suppose, that I've never had to wear glasses or anything like that, but people that have, I know when you speak to them, it, it can be life-changing just in regular lives but when we're playing sport it could be massive couldn't it yeah I think the thing as well is if you've got a squad of 40 players and the one that's got a visual problem is your best player and you've tested the whole squad but the best player's vision's been dramatically improved then you're on to a winner there yeah no definitely no it's really interesting it'll be interesting to see um, how that progresses as well um, how that could be implemented in the future so We'll have to stay in touch about that one because it is a really interesting topic. Yeah, I think, that, well, there's a couple of clubs using visual stuff in the Premier League at this moment in time, but I'm not allowed to divulge and see who they are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll see things in the future when uh, when more stuff's done. But no, it'd be good. I think it'd be good now to move on to, and it's something that we've not touched on too much in recent episodes because I think a lot of people have spoke about the lockdown a lot. But in terms of... Um, 
physical preparation in this period we're, with your players. We're going back into the season, depending on when people listen to this. We're, well, the, the first games are tonight from when we're recording, um, but we've been in lockdown for a while now. So how's, how's lockdown been for yourself, but then also for the players? How, how do you think they found that this period? Yeah, speaking to some of the players, I think I think we dealt with the situation quite well, to be fair, because the first two weeks we sort of came off the lads because we didn't know how long the lockdown would go on for. So if we'd been on them from day one, I think we probably got a bit of kickback if you're texting them, calling them like, get on Zoom, let's get on a let's get on a CV session, then you're going to get a bit of kickback. So we sort of gave them two weeks off and gave them a blanket of CV sessions and like capacity-based circuits and core sessions to complete in their own time. And then after the two weeks, um, we sort of said, okay, now we need to start getting into them and getting some work done with them. So I think we dealt with this really well. We split them up into three groups between Jamie, Harry, um, myself. So we split them into groups of players who had a, like full gy- a full gym, lots of gym equipment, players who had some equipment and then players with no equipment. So these players would look to complete two lower sessions a week, consisting of like an eight exercise circuit involving like bilateral, unilateral exercises, hip, knee, dominant, hamstring exercises um, that also complete at least one core session a week on Zoom. And then Scotty and Mike, um, they were managing all the running and pitch-based loading um, of what the lads were doing. For some lads down in London, we managed to source like local pitches for them to go and use because some players were getting stopped in Battersea Park, which isn't ideal with coronavirus. Um, but yeah, each player was given a heart rate and GPS so we could track internal and external load. And they were given like a blanket for the week of sort of, okay, this is what we want you to do Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday into the weekend. So we knew what they were doing on sort of a day-to-day basis. And then we'd fit the lower sessions in and around them when we could. But we also provided the lads with equipment, with bikes, um, so they could do CV sessions in SNC or just general recovery bits in their own time. Yeah, it's been it's been one of those times that is very strange, isn't it? That we've been thrown into it, but... It's interesting to speak to a lot of practitioners and clubs to see how well um, they've adapted in quite a short period as well, because it was pretty much dropped on us, wasn't it? So the plan just had to be created out of out of nothing, really, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, the first, I think everyone's probably the same. The first few weeks, everyone's like, oh, don't worry, we'll be back in next week. Yeah. The games will still be going on. And then three months later, season's starting again tonight. But yeah, um, yeah I think... Uh, overall, I think we dealt with it well. And the feedback, to be fair, we got from the players. The players were quite appreciative of how we approached that. So that's a win-win from both sides. Yeah, and that, that's a really important side of a programme, isn't it? That you get that sort of buy-in and, and the players are on side of it because I'm sure they'll understand better than anyone that it's a position that none of us want to be in. But we all have to crack on and we all have to be prepared for when things kick off again. Yeah, exactly. And least of all them, because they just want to go out and play football. But I think they picked up a few new hobbies in terms of gardening and cooking, by the sound of things. (laughs) Perfect time to do it, though, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah. No better time. No better time. Well, that's been awesome, mate. I think we've got through everything that we said um, we wanted to get through before. So I hope people have taken plenty from it. But I just wanted to ask, in terms of... If people want to reach out to you, I know you mentioned Twitter before. So you're on Twitter, you're on social media. What's the best place to reach out if anyone's got any questions? Uh, actually, I'm not on Twitter in the process of setting one up. So I'll um, let you know, mate. I'll give you one of those before uh, 
you put the podcast out. But yeah, any questions or any contact, just uh, hit me up on my Crystal Palace email, which is fraser.finley at cpsc.co.uk. Happy to discuss any of the things we've discussed today. Awesome. Awesome. I think there'll be a few interested in the cognitive visual uh, training side of things because, uh, like I said, it's not something we've covered too much. And I don't think there's too much stuff out there. So you might get a few questions on that. But big thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate you giving up your time. And um, when you get going on, on Saturday, uh, I wish you all the best for the rest of the season. Yeah, fingers crossed we get three points Saturday. Thanks for having me on, mate. Really enjoyed it. And keep the good work up you're doing with the podcast. It's really good and informative for practitioners. Thanks a lot, mate. Take care. Cheers, mate. You too. Speak soon. Thank you again for your support and listening to the podcast and big thank you to Fraser for giving up his time and coming on the show. Um, Some great takeaways from this one, the sports science office benefits. So he he mentioned a a good few names from his time at Liverpool and some practitioners that he'd worked with and utilising those people in the sports science office. Um, He touched on the shoulders down approach. So a lot of people are focusing from the shoulders down, but can we impact um, from the neck up and hit um, or utilize some cognitive and visual training within our practice? So it'll be really interesting to see where that goes. Um, He talks about visual deficits with players. Um, So that obviously has a big impact. It's something that I've not heard about or heard talked about too much, but you can imagine the impact that makes with people. And I think I mentioned it in the episode. I'm, I'm lucky I'm not personally someone that's ever struggled with eyesight, but I know a lot of people that have, and when they have had that corrected, whether that's through laser eye surgery or or the right glasses, it can have a huge impact on life. So just imagine relating that to sport um, and the impact it can have on performance. And I think it's really exciting as well. Another takeaway is the future of where this can go, how this can be applied into um, a preparation our physical preparation and where this goes in sort of five ten years time so it'll be really interesting to keep up with the research that Fraser's doing but also anyone else in this same field so big thank you to Fraser for coming on it was great to speak to him Um, the episode is available on YouTube too so we're releasing a lot of our podcasts now on YouTube too so if you um, would rather watch the podcast rather than just listen to it, you can go and check it out on YouTube, our YouTube channel. If you just search Football Fitness Federation, and you'll find um, this episode as well as some recent episodes on there as well. And you can go and watch it. The visual on this one isn't great, so it is a little bit dark from Fraser's end, but um, you do. I, I think it is quite nice to watch them sometimes rather than just listening to, to them all the time. Um, you can go and follow Fraser as well. I know he's just set a new Twitter up. We had a little laugh before we were um, recording the podcast because I said about his Twitter and he said he didn't really use it, So, but he said he was setting a new one up. So he has set a new one up. So go and give him a follow. I'm sure he appreciates some followers. So go and follow him at FS Findlay, which is F-I-N-D-L-A-Y, and then the number one. So FS Finley and then one. So go and give him a follow and let him know what you thought of the podcast. I'm sure he'll appreciate any feedback. And like I said at the start of the episode, we have got some great guests coming up. Some that will divide opinion, um, especially next week's show. But I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. I think it's going to be great, along with plenty of other guests coming up, um, working in all different levels of football. And um, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it, but some really good guests coming up. And I'm really looking forward to, to releasing those episodes for you. So big thank you again for listening. And we'll speak to you again next week.